normally I'll have like an opening bit of something I've been thinking about. Like, mm -hmm. uh, like you know, re recently I've been sort of riffing on Twitter on uh, the idea of uh, dipping uncooked shrimp into melted milk chocolate and this being the height of luxury, um, which is true. There's, there's I mean, no greater I, luxury gonna, than that. I'm not going to argue with that, so... It's elite tier. Um, you get food poisoning, but you know that's you know sacrifices are made. You know, it's like this is this is not pop. This is not rap. This is heavy metal, right? Suffering is part of the deal. High fashion requires sacrifice, and that's just part of the game. Like yeah. you're gonna wear. Like, did you, Eden? Did you see the uh, the shoe collaboration between uh, Derek Rose and Kanye? That sounds terrible. Um, I did not. Oh. No. Oh, you you have you have absolutely no idea how <laughs> terrible it is. Um, let me. I would be let, disappointed if it didn't blow my mind with its terribleness. Let me. Uh, and I, I say this as someone who has written a fair deal about about Kanye. Um, you know, obvious obviously his brain is melted now like a candle. Um, and you know, I've I've. Uh, bipolar and I'm on the spectrum. So I, I, I get I get how that can be. And, you know, I, I have yeah. sympathy, but it, the motherfucker should not be speaking into a hot mic right now. That's plainly obvious. Um, all that all that doesn't explain just. All right. I'm going to I'm going to make a note to actually uh, put a link to this image in the description or maybe even make the cover image. Uh, uh, these fucking shoes. Can can you look at those shoes real quick, Eden? Can I can I like go back to before <laughs> I saw these shoes? No, no, there's there's no returning. This is the irrepassable gate. Um I'm listen, you haven't heard me out. I'm willing to like sacrifice a small country's economy to go back. Uh well, I mean, if you pay me directly, if you give me all of this money, yeah. I'll I'll work something out. I'll I'll figure uh, out I a will, way. From now on, I will dedicate myself to this quest to go back to before I saw this. My life is over until I can um, turn the wheel back. This is terrible. Yeah, uh, like the thing that I find beautiful about them, the, th the thing that I find uh, uh, fascinating and mm. enervating about them is they're like the they're like the shoe equivalent of this year. Yeah, like, like I don't, you know, obviously, obviously people are making the whole like, you know, 2020 is such a piece of shit thing. And that, that's getting kind of played out. I mean, obviously, it's true. You know, no, no one no one's like this year. It's been a pretty fucking terrible year. Um, and jokes about it are, you know, give off big cope energy. And I'm like, OK, that's you know, it's kind of <laughs> annoying. But then I look at the shoe. Um, it straight up looks like fish bones. I, it, it looks like. A fishbone byproduct, right? It looks like processed fish bones, or like a ribbed condom for your foot. Yeah, I, I just, <laughs> I mean, I don't want to be an asshole. I didn't have any beef with Derek Rose until I saw this shoe, and now he is my nemesis, <laughs> and I will undo him. Um, He's also the he... nemesis of the people of Chicago, so you know. Yeah, isn't he known for getting injured a lot? Oh yeah, oh yeah. So um, one of the it's one of the big things that uh that people on death sentence may or may not know is I I fucking love sports inexplicably. Um, mm. 
But uh, yeah, yeah, no, he was he was like the hot up and coming new like yeah. Chicago Bowl player, and then he uh, all of his bones exploded. Yeah, so <laughs> maybe you shouldn't take footwell advice from him. Although maybe, um, maybe this is an act of like thaumaturgical malice. Mm. You know, maybe he's given his heart to the dark arts, and yeah. he's transformed his hatred into a shoe that can punish the world. Right, or maybe it was kind of like um, a simulacrum for his pain. Like he took his pain and put it into this shoe, ah. and now the pain does not haunt him anymore. It haunts the shoe instead. It's like it's like the Melmoth of footwear. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, yeah. And that that segues uh pretty well into uh. So welcome to Death Sentence. Um, this is your death sentence for the week. Uh, later in the episode, we're going to be covering um, Lord of Light by Roger Zelazny, um, mm-hmm. a book that not only that me and Eden love, but I know that Gareth also loved it. We talked about the pe- we mentioned it offhandedly with the people from uh, uh, Podside Picnic um, when they were on briefly, just because if you like science fiction or fantasy, you either already love this book or will love it if you haven't read it yet. And even more generally, if you like reading, I can't, I, this is one of the few, one of the few is actually rude. It's one of the many in like the sci-fi and fantasy canon that yeah. I, I can't imagine someone who just generally likes books, not liking it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, it's like Dune in that way where it's like, it, do you like when the words are, you know, written on, you know, print them. Yeah, 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 you'll like this one. Um, but, uh, you know, we have to cover, unfortunately, uh, a bit of news because thankfully the world is slower now than like at the very beginning of the pandemic and everything. Yeah. Um, uh, it's still it's still terrible. So, uh, you know, update for anyone who, who's been living in Iraq or under Iraq, but somehow still has access to podcasts. Still bad. Still bad. Um, Joe Biden announced his running mate officially, and it was the person everyone thought it would be as of, like, February. The person they, quote-unquote, leaked to the press. Yeah, it was... Um, I, I, I'm not, like, I feel obligated to respond to it because I keep seeing people online respond to it, but honestly, I don't even know what, what other, like... I don't even know why why leftists, other leftists are are mad at this one, considering we all saw it coming from a mile away. Like they they weren't like under in what universe did anyone think they were going to throw us a bone? Yeah, I mean, my there's so there's so much to say about this that there's very little to say about it. Like everything is already very obvious. I just want to point out the interesting fact that her father was like an academic Marxist, right? Um, and he wrote, some, he wrote some pretty radical stuff. And that's an interesting parallel with our favorite male. Remember that guy? Um, Mr. Buttigieg, who, who, uh-huh. who, was a, who was a person up until like a few months ago, and now he has vanished as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> His father was also an academic radical. Um, and it's almost as if Marxists who only have theory, um, you know, don't raise their kids 
to be leftists. Yeah, there's definitely like a um there's a stern um warning message embedded in this that I think a lot of people are quick to overlook. It reminds me actually of how one of the big critiques of the DSA when the initial big boom of it happened um following the 2016 primaries. Um and it so before I get to the critique, obviously people were very excited about it, even people yeah. who were a little bit leery because it was like, oh, you know, we have all this historical basis to think maybe this won't work, maybe this will disappoint us because it has in the past. But there's a groundswell now that is so much bigger than what we saw before that, you know, that that's one of the big X factors in any social movement is, is the size of the mass. And once the masses are large enough, you can start doing things that literally seemed impossible before. So it's like, okay, well, maybe let's just entertain the thought. But the cautionary comment that was brought up, which it was, if the DSA runs itself as a reformist wing of the Democratic Party, um, what's to stop the machinery of the Democratic Party from just shutting this down by viewing it as, as a challenge just from another uh, from another direction. People were yeah. sort of resistant to that because they were like, well, you know, Democrats hate certain types of new leftists, typically. We're like, well, Democrats hate Republicans, so they're they're guarded against challenges to the right in a certain way. Um, but they pride themselves on being more left than Republicans. So if we can present an even more left and even more radical and satisfying option, then we can maybe not nab the people high up, but we can nab the people who subscribe to the city because, you know, we can present them a more compelling thing, sort of like the way that America slowly got baited into, I'm going to call it nominal queer rights because we're, we're still nowhere near a satisfactory amount, but you know, we got like gay marriage, which is yeah. not nothing. It's a, that's an important thing, but it's also like step one of a many, many step process. Not, not nearly the last one. Um, and the common response to that uh, critique from people early in the DSA's life was, uh, shut the fuck up. You're just being a hater. Um, <laughs> just like weird dumb shit. And it's like, I don't know. I mean, they've, they've, you know, did you not watch the 2016 primary and how that got handled? What makes you think they would let leftward challenges in a primary environment just go unchecked? What makes you think they wouldn't? And then you got certain other people where it's like, well, it's just voting, you know, the DNC isn't like a magical institution. They can't just shut stuff down. And it's like, no one's saying they're going to like wave a magic wand, but you can yeah. put as many mechanical blockages as you can, like, as you can muster in front of something you don't want to happen. That's not even like, that's not even like a political, like galaxy brain thought, but that's like anyone would do that if you're like, I don't like that thing coming down the pipe. I'm going to stop it any way that I can. Like no one's saying that they had magic, the magic ability to just be like, you won the election, but you didn't win the election. Um, <laughs> it's instead, so, you know, much more boring shit. I actually, I actually want to say that. I do want to say that it's magic. And I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll explain myself. There's this idea I'm that. Very intrigued. Yeah, there's this idea that the people that run institutions or institutions themselves just have more um, beans in their pile than we do. Right? They have like 
500 beans and we have five beans. So when we go to the bean market, why, why the hell is this the metaphor I went with? But when we go to the <laughs> bean market, they just have a lot more beans to buy stuff and do stuff. So it's, it's this idea of quantity. They just have more power and more influence than us. But the way that society is built is that when you're inside of the machine, when you're inside an institution, there's actually a qualitative difference as well between you and those people outside. It's not just that you have amassed more currency or power. It is also that you have new actions open to you and new paths of behavior that were, were closed when you were outside of the institution. And those actions can, to people outside, can seem like, can seem like magic. Um, so for example, you know, one of the main characteristics of magic is that only the adepts know how to use it, right? It's arcane knowledge. Explain super delegates to me. Like yeah, you, fu that, you fucking can't. You can't. It, like maybe you can. Since Republicans don't even have super delegates, and they're the yeah. openly fash party. Yeah. So it, it's not specifically super delegates. It's like all of these party mechanisms, all of these tools that make things go, they're magic. And we should at some point talk about the craft sequence, um, which is a very interesting yeah. uh, bunch of books where law and magic are kind of the same and they kind of interact with the world in the same ways. That's kind of what's happening here. If you're like a DNC um, bureaucrat, you have conjurations and worlds of power that someone from the outside doesn't have that you can use to make things happen in reality. Like, what is magic if it's not that? We even have, like, a linkage to something. Uh, here it is. Uh, the Deleuze said, there it is. There it is. My, my one for episode. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, it's, it's one of the things that gets overlooked from him a lot, which I find weird, considering it's, it's much more mechanically useful uh, in day-to-day -day life than some of his other stuff. Um, and it's that idea of, like, thresholds and uh eruptive power yeah. is that we can take if we if you imagine like a graph um because uh, another big uh open secret um philosophers fucking love graphs fucking love them. <laughs> like oh i oh i love graphs especially if they're like really hard to understand you look at it yeah. and you're like i guess everything this says is true but i'm not sure what does that say dragon what <laughs> what does that mean um <clears throat> But if we imagine going back to your metaphor of like, we have a vertical scale of power, like the, the unit doesn't matter, you know, but you know, normal people have less people in these institutions have more. So we can have like two bars, you know, one's really low, one's really high. It's important also to think and this sort of is something, uh, sort of the mechanism behind what you were saying, sort of the mechanism behind the weird magic that power has is one power is more logarithmic than arithmetic, meaning yeah. that if I have twice as much power as you, that can do eight times as much shit as, as yours because it, it, it snowballs. It, it, all of this stuff rolls downhill. That's part of the logic behind mass movements is that one person... It's not that 100 people can do 100 times what one person can do it's that there's unique things that only 100 people can do that one person literally could never do even mm -hmm. if 100 individual people did the same thing in sequence it would never do the same thing as this big movement
Um, and we even see that with, <clears throat> with reformist stuff. Like we all know where body cams on cops went in the long run. Fucking nowhere. They just, Oh, they're, yeah. they're broken. They're malfunctioned, you know, whatever. But even getting that was only a process or was only possible through enough people being angry. Now, obviously that was used to placate people to make them less angry so that they did not push for the final, um, the final element of that line of thought, which is the abolition of police in the carceral state. But, you know, um, but what this outlines is that you can almost make like horizontal, like bands that you know, a stack of horizontal bands on the sort of power, vertical power spectrum. And it's not just that when you cross from nine to 10, you are, you know, a little bit more powerful. It's that each of these bands has like thing, things that are available to you, actions that are available to you, mechanisms that are available to you. And once you cross through that threshold between these two sections, you open up a door to entirely new mechanisms that you just couldn't do before. To the point yeah. where they may as well not have existed. And that's where sort of the metaphor of magic can come in, where it's like, it's shit you wouldn't even think was possible or allowable that suddenly, like, like what you brought up, the whole thing with superdelegates, they make the rules. They have enough power that the, the rules of the system are made by them because that they're like literally, like the DNC votes on rule changes for primaries and caucuses every single year. Um, in a way that a normal person can't. A normal person only has one vote in this process. But the institution that creates and vets those rules can just can just choose to veto them if if they so choose. Um, and that's sort of that's a much more mechanically useful bit of Deleuze that doesn't get touched on all that much, which which I find frustrating. Um, because also the power that you need to cross from to cross through the threshold is often a substantial amount. That's why he tends to refer to it as like eruptive power mm -hmm. and part of his like reclamation of Nietzsche, where it's like, that's where the will to power comes from. That's where the Ubermenschen um, mindset in like a non-fascist, non-Nazi-ish way um, <laughs> can, be, can be deployed because it's like, they're going to put a hard barrier in front of you. And it's a barrier that if you, if you honor that barrier, you literally can't ever win because that barrier solely exists to cripple a necessary function to get what you want that they don't want you to have. Yeah. This is broadly true of capitalism. This is broadly true of patriarchy. This is broadly true of heteronormative, queerphobic elements of society. Um, and this goes back to the, the critical critique of the DSA, which is you can come in going, we're going to present a leftward challenge to primary figures within within the party. But all they then have to do is put as many mechanical blockages in front of your way as they possibly can. Like we saw that with Biden, where um, Bernie, who has a number of critiques that can be leveled against him, I'm extremely wary of anyone who presents him as like a golden calf figure. That That's yeah. really fucking ludicrous to me. Um, he, demonstrably better than the other figures, though. Um, once it was clear that he was winning, uh, we, we know this now, there was a bunch of calls basically from Obama to a bunch of different figures, because if you've ever become the president, you get like, uh, 
like a president emeritus position within the party. Like George W. Bush has immense sway within the Republican Party because he was a sitting president. Um, this is this is true broadly of pretty much any government, not just America. Um, but he called up a bunch of people and it's like, you need to drop out and all of you need to endorse Biden because all of you, all of your supporters together behind Biden can push him over the edge uh, in a way that um, Bernie alone couldn't, like couldn't overcome. Um, yeah, and I think what I, what I always like when I, like Deleuze's metaphors are usually, you know, what I call um, push metaphors. It's like you need to push against something or mm-hmm. take your force and, and focus it to a certain point. And I always like to look at the flip side of that and use pull metaphors, like who gets to tap into power and who gets to direct the flow, who, who gets to... So if you talked about blockage, who gets to decide where things are open and free, um, which, of course, Deleuze also touched on. That's the whole idea of smooth space right, versus yeah. saturated space. But to name drop another French guy, um, I find the idea of uh, George Batier's The Accursed Shell more and more relevant to our lives. So the idea is that every human activity and it scales up as that activity becomes more and more widespread, like society, for example, produces waste, produces excess. And sometimes that excess and waste go to, you know, things that are luxurious but don't have like an immediate physical gain, like art, for example. Right? The only reason we can yeah. do art is because our society makes more food than we need so that so the individuals don't have to make their own food, right? They can live off of that waste. The problem when that waste is not channeled or channeled very explosively, to go back to Deleuze, you get stuff like war and even quote-unquote noble things like sacrifice or religion or um, mass hysteria and stuff like that. And the more you look at what America and by, um, you know, by uh, like a hierarchical structure, all of the countries that are its clients, like Israel and the UK and whole swaths of Europe and so on, um, is that waste, right? that accursed shell that as um, culture and society and all these other outputs of it become degraded and blocked and atrophied, that waste has to go somewhere, right? And that somewhere is into unnamed vans in Portland and to choosing a cop as your vice president during the largest social movement for police reform in your country. That is a big fuck you. Like going back to Kamala Harris. It does a lot of things. And it's like a world of power that Biden or or his campaign rather used to invoke a bunch of effects. But one of the effects that they chose is go fuck yourself like to every single person who, who's protesting in the last few months. So it almost feels compulsive, right? Like Biden doesn't even have a fucking choice, right? He, he, there's so much waste building up, so much anxiety, so much like repressed... Um, social tension that it has to go into this big you know fuck you um and that so, th- yeah that that taps into the the leading mood that i had seen within the so i never joined the dsa largely because i thought the critique 
critiques of you can't run a leftist reformist element of the Democratic Party because that will only work for a, a brief window. The brief window where they're not expecting a sincere, uh, efficacious leftward challenge. The minute that, and we saw figures like um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ilan Omar actually be able to succeed and succeed very well. And we saw state delegates like Lee Carter in Virginia here, and uh, there are some in uh, Mississippi and in Alabama and some in Georgia. Once that happened, things were going to change just enough so that that couldn't happen again. Not that yep. so it couldn't happen again in a broad broader like voter base way because obviously people's sentiments aren't going to be radically changed by rule changes but or many won't but you're not going to be able to be as successful within the party infrastructure because once it happens one time successfully they'll go this is something we need to account for from this point forward and then they will and so there'd been this growing mood even prior to the kamala harris announcement that the dsa needs to break away and have a long-term plan to lay groundwork to become its own party um rather yeah, than I being mean, a wing yeah i mean if only someone had told us that this would happen <laughs> maybe a russian figure of some sort that would, um that would be uh, awesome oh that would be that'd be great yeah oh, that'd mean, be especially if like if we'd been told you know well in advance like over a century yeah, and then like he maybe if the things that he wrote about he could actually put into practice so that he'd proven that it works. And that if you form not to give the joke away, but if you form a vanguard, <laughs> um you can bypass this bean counting method of reformism and strike at the core of power. And that's like, that yeah. That's what brings me back to the Kamala Harris thing and, and why this whole whole jag was there. All of this is why even the leftist response to the Kamala Harris thing, I, I get a sense of despair and I think and a sense of anger and a sense of like, really, what the fuck? You know, because that, that's a human response. No one wants the machine to keep being shitty like yeah. that. And so being like, really, you're going to still be shitty. Fuck you. Um, That's totally valid. But seeing there's still a certain level that any any serious look at both leftist writing and praxis and the mechanisms that that we're trying to fight against both in america and abroad like this shouldn't have come as a surprise to anyone it's in fact it's, I, not, it's not just a surprise i mean okay the reaction is totally valid right? yeah like it's a it's a traumatizing moment, especially for um, trans people, right? Where Kamala Harris has a history of brutality oh, towards yeah. trans people. Um, it is a it is a moment of of trauma, and I totally understand the knee jerk reaction, not in the negative sense, right? It's totally valid. But then you you have to take the time to you know feel that and deal with it and manage it, and then realize that nothing has changed. It literally does not matter whether Bernie Sanders was the VP. It wouldn't, it wouldn't change yeah. anything. Unl unless the person, it shouldn't be a person, the people who are running the country, America or Israel or any other country on the planet, want to change the means of production and their distribution, it does not matter who they are.
So there's harm reduction and there's a spectrum. And of course, I'd rather be under the rule of, um, I don't know, Boris Johnson than the rule of uh, the guy in Belarus whose name uh, escapes me right now. Or like, I wouldn't want to go and live in uh, under Bolsonaro. I'd rather live under Macron, even though essentially they are the same, right? It's more about our response to them and our mentality towards them is, oh, cool, you chose this capitalist to be your VP? Okay. And we're still going to fight you the same that we did before. The tactics don't change because he chose Kamala Harris over Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders, to be honest. The tactics are still the same tactics. Um, so I get the... How, how spicy do I want to make this take? <laughs> oh, I'm going to go full spicy. West Wing, the show, is a crime against humanity. Because... Well, I mean, yeah. Yeah, it has... <laughs> that, for, is that forget, spicy? Like... <laughs> I, I feel it kind of is. I don't know. Not, not just because it's bad, like in the quality, and it's lazy, which it is, but because it educated a generation of people, mostly men, by the way, that politics is about romantic uses of power, right? It's about sparring. It's about a duel. Like, when Bernie Sanders was running against Joe Biden, what was happening can be understood through the metaphor of a duel or like an army maneuver. I'm going to... How many times have you heard this metaphor, right? I'm going to outmaneuver them. I'm going to flank them. The yeah. Biden campaign is flanking. That's all bullshit. It's absolute nonsense. That's not the way that politics works. It's not the way that power is handled. It is done in much more obscure, mechanical, and technical ways and terms. And when these people are sitting in a room, they don't see each other as, as a dueling opponent. They see each other as points of discourse and meaning and metaphor and culture and economics to be deployed in a way that would convince the most people to vote for them. But it has nothing to do with this. There's no map. No, no battle maps thrown over a table where red arrows are drawn dramatically and the person who is like the shrewdest that's another thing that drives me crazy you know we can do it with trump as well but george bush is like bush jr is even a better example he's not an actual idiot he was just you know he was lulling people into a sense of safety so that he could pounce on them what the fuck do you think politics is do you think he's like hunting a tiger or whatever it's right? not the way like it's it, yeah. it it brings up the same level of like when people feign, I, I hope they're feigning shock when you see like, oh, uh, Bernie Sanders immediately congratulated Kamala Harris yeah. when, when she got yeah. the and people were like, people were like, I can't believe that. You, it's like, really, you can't like this yeah. is it's it's the ritual. If he doesn't perform the ritual, then like a wizard, he loses his powers, his his powers become ineffective. He has to participate in the political ritual. So it's, going back. Yeah, go ahead. It, it it's it's a big reason why, like, I I don't like I. This is gonna sound weird to some people, maybe, but I honestly don't give a fuck if people are gonna vote for Joe Biden. I don't give a fuck because that that the participation in the interruptive electoral process has never been the guts of leftism. Never. Yeah. It's literally never been. Yeah. Like. So, it, so it's like, I'm not, I don't think that that's people abandoning their praxis. And I also don't think that that's somehow people like seizing up their praxis. I don't think it's strongly related in any way whatsoever. Like from a harm reduction argument sense, I can absolutely see 
route, routing Trump because Trump's acceleration of fascist models within America is literally frightening on a global end. Like people all over the planet are are freaked by this motherfucker. Um, especially like in a pandemic condition where he, where we're in basically the only country that seems to be stoking the flame. Yeah. It, which is literally dangerous on a global level. Like really trying to get through to people that America being quarantined for travel by every civilized nation in the world. I hate to use the word civilized by every, by every nation in the world. Um, is a is a big fucking deal that's literally not happened before like that's yeah. never happened before ever that it's like if you're from america you literally can't come here because there's no guarantee you won't give our people a literal wasting disease yeah. um but even in that model voting or not voting for biden is and especially making a big deal of it is pure virtue signaling which is a phrase i don't normally like to deploy because normally it's a way to just do thuggish leftist clout games rather than actually talk about praxis but mm -hmm. in this instant which is just a masturbatory fucking waste of time um in this instance i feel mildly comfortable using it though because it's like we we still have boots on the street uh protesting police violence, protesting uh, systemat uh, systematic racism, both in policing and in broader social structures, protesting uh, the queer phobia and like fascist creep. Uh, like that's leftism. The people on the street in Portland and Chicago and New York, just uh, and the occasional blips that we see elsewhere in the country. That's the point. We don't need to we especially don't need to like tear each other apart over someone having vague electoral thoughts when like that's not the main point yeah like it, these yeah it, it also it also like so one of the most interesting things that i've been like theory devices that i've been experimenting with in the past few years when thinking about these things is the idea of mosaicism um, and, and the first place that I encountered it is when I read Desert. If you haven't read Desert, just stop this podcast right now. Go read Desert. It's on the anarchist um, online library. It's an anonymous text that talks about anarchist tendencies towards climate change. Um, and the way that it deploys uh, mosaicism is by saying, we like to think of climate change as this romantic thing that someone will just snap their finger fingers and everything will collapse at the same time. But the truth is, some places are going to benefit from climate change and climate catastrophe. Some places mm -hmm. will suffer from it to a certain degree, and then other places will suffer from it to that degree times 100, right? So it's not going to be the same. It's going to be a mosaic, right? It's going to be uh, a mishmash of things. And, and the more I think about it, the more I feel like that is the metaphor that I needed in my life to explain so many things, especially about leftism. Like you look at Kamala Harris getting picked as the VP. There is not one acceptable way to think about that event. It's a mosaic of thoughts and interactions. So some person will engage a bit more with the romantic politics side of it and, and, and read think pieces about how it's a maneuver and what they're trying to do. But as long as they don't dive all the way deep into it and that becomes the only way they can experience this, this event, it's fine. Another person will take our approach and say, hey, this is nonsense, this is not important, let's talk about 
organization and boots on the ground and stuff like that. That's also fine. The mm-hmm. thing to remember is that the making one of those pieces of the mosaic, and especially the romantic one, your central explanatory device, that's what the institution wants you to do. Once it's the wrong world, right? That's the, how the institution is set up uh, to be understood. Power wants you to understand it as a monument, as a monolith, as a singular thing, when it's, it is in fact a bunch of different things and a million different ramifications. And that's the stuff that I that I mentioned with Kamala Harris, you know, being more of a, a deployment of, of things than, than a tactical choice. It gives Biden, or his campaign rather, um, all sorts of access points, many, dozens of access points with different cultures, different groups, different ways of speaking, different, even like visual, visual aids, right? The way that they can deploy Kamala Harris's heritage and figure and um, facial expressions are, is different than how they could do it with Elizabeth Warren, for example, or, or Bernie Sanders, right? So I'm not saying that there's a correct way to experience this, but I'm saying that um, being inflexible and insisting on reading things um, in a certain way, in a very Aaron Sorkin, tactical, mastermind sort of way, is actively harmful to being a leftist. And we would do a, like, a lot better for ourselves if we, if we were flexible and we asked, like, what are the different facets of this? What are the different um, manifestations of it across the board? And when you do it that way, you come to the conclusion that none of those are really important for you. <laughs> like, what yeah. are the actual ways in which those dozens and dozens of, of different systems, which systems do you interact with that Kamala Harris is relevant for? Do you go to galas? Do you go to, like, fancy black tie events? I, I assume not, like, if you're a leftist. Do you, <laughs> are you, like, a chief of police in, in a city? That would be awesome if you were a chief of police and you were a communist, but I don't think that's a thing. Um, so like what, what circles do you hang out in that this is like activating anything in? If the answer is none or very few, then that's a good sign that there are better things for you to spend your time on. So how about we break for some music and then when we come back, we're going to cover, uh, Lord of Light. Um, uh, so for anyone who doesn't know about the band Primitive Man, um, they're, I guess the the polite, simple way to describe them is they're a sludge doom band, and then that's it. Um, <laughs> a little bit, a little bit more detail, of course, would be uh, that. So their their debut record came out in like 2013, I think, somewhere around there, early 2010s, very early 2010s, mm-hmm. and it they they feel like a contemporary evolution of the feeling that I hate God was developing toward Yeah, where it's, you can talk about, Oh, are, there's elements of, of noise. There's elements of industrial, of black metal, of death metal in there. So, and all that's true, but that sort of misses the point that there, the idea is for it to be as caustic as possible. And any one of those approaches doesn't fully hit, that that cost that sense of like causticism I, I don't have mm-hmm. a good word for it um where it feels like molten acid sludge that is going to rip the flesh from your skeleton um 
like black metal on its own can quickly become kind of cartoonish. It can become like clown music. Um, maybe that's a controversial statement, but I find like pure second wave <laughs> stuff to be just straight dork shit most of the time. Yeah. There's obviously killer second wave records, but people in like 2020 trying to sound like a second wave. I'm like, come the fuck on. Like fucking Fenris doesn't even do it anymore. Jesus Christ. Like grow, grow up. Um, I mean, he's busy being elected against his will to uh, local government. Right? That, that shit's so fucking funny. To me. <laughs> Especially because they reelected him because they yeah. liked how good of a job he did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and like, you know, death metal in its in its purest sense, real I mean, really isn't angry music at all. It's more like I, I have the, I have the argument that death metal is more along that main trunk of like heavy, like heavy blues rock than hard rock, than traditional heavy metal, than thrash and then death metal make up the sort of trunk of heavy metal for me. That's like the very center of it. We even get little bits of that where like black metal technically arose as an evolution of death metal sort of trying to course correct. Like you're getting like this and thrash are both getting too technical. Let's bring it back to a primitive end. But like this is uh, too cultured. Yeah. And so like in that sense, like death metal in its purest form is uh, dumb fun. Like it can be brainy. It can be really extreme. It can, you know, but you know, I'm, more often than not, I listen to death metal so much because it's tight. And if I'm thinking this is really tight, that's not caustic. Like, I need to be thinking, fuck, I'm going to throw up because I'm so depressed. Like that. <laughs> um, uh, and, and same with, like, industrial left in its purest form gets, you know, the sort of motoric kind of vibe to it. It sort of needs this. I mean, that's where you get, like, throbbing gristle uh, approaches kraut rock from the other side sometimes. Um, you even get that like can has like industrial vibes just from being pure kraut rock. But but there's something beautiful about that I hate God style of sludge that is just like it feels like you are so depressed that you will literally pass away. Like Collapse you will you will sorrow your soul out of your body. Um yeah. and uh at least for my money. Primitive Man is probably the absolute best at that kind of vibe. Like, there are a couple short-lived bands like Vermin Womb and Clinging to the Trees of a Forest Fire that I think were strong contenders, but, like, they they tended to be short-lived. Um, and then, like, Thou, I think, used to live in this world, and Thou can certainly be, mm. like, mind-bogglingly heavy when they want to be, but they've sense revealed this like very panoramic um approach to their sound and approach to like how like what they're willing to make under the banner that all of yeah. it's fucking great i love all that shit but it does sort of i don't purely think of them as like uh i like i i can't i can't speak for you eden but i imagine being uh being a person who is alive in the 20th century uh, that you at some point have had an anxiety attack that was so bad that like you felt like your body was on fire, you were throwing up, and you honestly wished that you'd die. Um, oh, yeah. I certainly have. Um, yeah. Like, very sincerely, it's like a nightmare scenario. But And Primitive Man sounds like how that feels. And that's amazing to me. <laughs> like, 
Because like one of the other big things about extreme music in general that I think about um, as sort of like a modal thing is at some point you embrace some people embrace art as a, a bomb. They want it to soothe or to escape. And I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that. Um, Cause that's, that's only one aspect of their life. Like if you use art to escape your life because you're doing fruitful, productive things in your life and community, then you know, whatever. Um, I'm not going to judge that. Like I approach it different, but I'm not going to judge that. Um, but other people wind up wanting art that more, describes or intensifies their experiences or allows them to experience other other things they may never have access to um and one of the values that i find in something like primitive man is having gone through those very intense like emotional nightmarish scenarios it having that feeling captured on tape feels very validating and soothing in a weird way um it's like oh not only am I not alone in this, you know, in that I've read that other people have experienced it, but I can point to a piece of art and go like you like turned it into a crystal and embedded it into this uh, uh, big heavy metal golem. I don't know what that metaphor was trying to do, but uh... <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, for me, it's I, I totally resonate with what you said. Um, I, I suffer a lot from from anxiety and panic attacks and stuff like that. Um, and I, I think for me, metal in, in general is exposure theory, um, yeah. uh, therapy, sorry, in many ways, like this thing, you're not experiencing it, but you have the pause button. Even if you don't click it, like I don't often find myself listening to an album and saying, this is too much. I, I have to stop this, but the very ability to stop it. It's something that you don't have when you're having a panic attack, right? Um, or having, um, uh, or any other mental health related episode it literally fucks with those mechanisms that press pause and all that shit that's what it means to suffer from anxiety yeah. um, so having the music kind of say here's that thing and we did a very good job at, at recording it with with fidelity but you have control that for me is very empowering um and validating yeah that's uh so I'm going to go with, so obviously Primitive Man have a new record out uh, that just came out uh, the day that we're recording this, which is uh, 15th of August. This is probably going to be going up within the next day or two. So it'll, it, yeah. it the, the newest one. Um, uh, I think I'm going to play Foul. Mm. Um, it, the record's, the record's called Immersion. It's only six tracks. It's less than 40 minutes. So it's like super digestible. So, um, all the tracks sort of live in the same world. Um, this one just is uh, really fucked up. So, all right, here is Foul.
All right. That was uh, Primitive Man with Foul. Um, if you need to pause to go throw up because you're too depressed now, um, <laughs> you know, feel, feel free. Uh, thankfully, the book that we're going to be talking about, Lord of Light, uh, actually will probably literally make you feel better. Um, yeah. Yeah, so uh, Lord of Light is a novel by a novelist called Roger Zelazny, who is, it's funny because he, he's one of the most like well-beloved science fiction authors, but and yet, he's, he, right? <laughs> yeah, and yet he, he, criminally underrated. Like, when you think about great science fiction, some of the first names that come to mind just instinctively are like Arthur C. Clarke, Isaac Asimov, um, Robert Heinland, but wasn't he fash? And it's like, yeah, and it's like Ursula K. Le Guin. No, she was more fantasy, wasn't it? And so, well, she had sci-fi stuff too. That counts. It's like, okay. Um, <laughs> like, you're working through. And even for a lot of people who've read like a good bit of sci-fi, Zelazny will sort of be someone will throw out like, oh, why didn't you mention him? You're like, oh shit, I forgot him. Yeah, no, I love his stuff. But yeah, it always seems to, it always seems to bubble under in this very strange way that like, that I've never understood because everyone who's ever read his stuff loves it. Like I've so, literally never, I've never met anyone who's even like moderately positive. It's always rapturous. I'll, I'll make an attempt to explain <laughs> it. So I have, a decades-long relationship with Roger Zelazny. Um, I consumed Amber when I was 15. That's his big fantasy yeah. series. I had the Omnibus <laughs> edition, which is like 1,200 pages long. And I just read it in, in like two weeks because I couldn't stop. And I've literally read every single thing this guy has written. Like you can sit with the bibliography article on Wikipedia and all the novels, all the main stuff that he's done, and most of the short story collections I have read. I absolutely love this guy. And I spent a lot of years trying to understand why he seems so underrated. And I think that it's because the only other author that is as subtle as Roger Zelazny is also Le Guin. In the sense yeah. that the characters are so human in a way that is hard to categorize so alive that they become a totality that is hard to define clearly um like who is a famous Ursula Le Guin character you you really can't name a name because it's not about you know their names as heroes or these big pieces unlike Robert Heinlein or all these other guys Zelazny is the same way but he is also not easily categorized in a chronological sense. Ursula Le Guin is very easily placed into the new wave of feminist science fiction. She belongs up there in a canon with Margaret Atwood and Octavia Butler and names of that sort, right? You cannot place Roger Zelazny in the same way with ease. He's not Golden Age. Right? He's not Asimov, he's not Simak or Heinlein or any of these people. His, his style doesn't fit them, his uh, uh, subject matter doesn't fit, and he's not, he wasn't a contemporary right? in a chronological sense. I mean, he was alive when they were, but he didn't hang out in the same circles. And then you try to put him in the new wave, and he tells you to shut the fuck up. 
because <laughs> he was very adamant about not being new wave and not even liking the term new wave. And also when you look at his books, sure, they have new wave elements, right? They have the same chromaticism and bright colors and psychedelia of, uh, of uh, Samuel Delaney, who was influenced by Zelesny, by the way, and of Enosa Le Guin or uh, Jose Philip Farmer and all these guys, or Harlan Ellison. But something feels, something feels different. And, and I think at the end, what feels different is his writing style. Um, I don't think Zelesny ever wrote prose. I think he only wrote poetry. I strongly uh, agree, actually. <laughs> yeah. His that sentence, was... yeah. His sentence structure, his his paragraph structure, his his book structure is more along the lines of of poetry with it with its attention to specific sentences and their wording and their imagery than it is to prose. Um so when you put all that together, you get someone who is elusive, right? He is singular and how to categorize so your brain doesn't you know pull him out of storage as easy as it does other authors we have such a strange relation that we see within within his writing um that part of the big thing is that uh, or part of the big thing for him is he seems to combine so many different aspects of, or aspects and approaches of writing that mm-hmm. Like within the golden age, we had predominantly it was didactic fiction with these genre trappings laced around it. Like, obviously, we have like the the dumb sort of thin adventure stories that were coming up in the golden age. But most of the ones that we remember are very strongly didactic, um, like exceedingly so. And that's part of their charm. Um, That's sort of the, the groundwork for a term that I deploy a lot and that people seem to not like, but I insist that it's accurate and useful and it's fake deep sci-fi um, <laughs> because it's, it's not act. It doesn't actually have the same depth or rigor as like an actual philosophical paper, or fi- but that's not the point. It's an aesthetic practice and art being mere aesthetic isn't a knock against it. That's sort of the primary function of art. The fact that the whole thing about art is that it's aesthetic that manages to reach inside of us by being pure aesthetic, not by being, it's a very like Marshall McLuhan type read of what art is admittedly, but like, that's, I feel very strong about that one. Um, Walter Benjamin wants to know your location, right? (laughs) Um, (laughs) I mean, and we see that a lot in, uh, in like the whole nature of poetry itself is it's about, the way in which you phrase something, not the thing that you're referring to. It's not mm-hmm. the fact that you're talking about a drop of water. It's the way that you've assembled all these words and you can refer to the same object, but the assemblage can be so radically different that it provokes these completely different responses. And so yeah. then the whole notion of slipstream was sort of the foundational thought of it. Most of the people involved, uh, to the credit of those writers, would insist that slipstream and new wave of science fiction, there are a couple different terms for it, doesn't exist, isn't real, and none of them were thinking that when they were making their work. Um, Which, ironically, is more a sign that you have an actual legitimate movement than (laughs) if they are artificially sort of trying to create it. Because then it's like, oh, well, now we are commenting on a modern approach that seems to have emerged organically rather than one that people decided like, let's make a manifesto and all that. And, um, and also I think that only a movement as ill-defined and as fluid as that 
can actually contain within itself the variety of voices needed for a movement to exist. Yeah, like, I mean, it, and, and yeah. And, and and the whole notion of it is 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 pretty purely we all love golden age science fiction we all love the um one of the parts that gets overlooked is they love fantasy novels specifically of like the late 1800s to like early 1920s yeah um they were like there's a very fabular uh aesthetic there they feel more like fairy tales and have this ethereal dream logic that and what if we put those together and then the way that we smooth the crack is we also have grown up in the wake of the boom of like the big literary fiction greats of the early 20th century. Like they'd all read Virginia Woolf and Faulkner and James Joyce and all of all of these other like big, big figures. And they're like, we like all of that stuff. Why don't we just do it all at the same time? Like mm -hmm. I don't just because I'm writing about a robot doesn't mean I have to make the sentence bad. Like that's not a law. Um, <laughs> And so it's like, okay. And so it's it's from that from that angle, it almost makes sense to put Zelazny there. Almost. Like it's very tempting. And that's where a lot of people get that idea from. But yeah, I agree with you very strongly in that, like, even while obviously Margaret Atwood was an accomplished poet as well as a prose writer, and we have poetry from uh, Ursula K. Le Guin as well, like it, it wasn't uncommon for new wave authors to be poets. But it's not it's not even just the fact that Zelazny was very poetic. It's like the way that he approached it. It felt yeah. simultaneously like like the 1800s era, like sci-fi and fantasy novels that you'd get. Um, not just obviously if people are probably going to immediately think Jules Verne and H.G. Wells, but there is actually like a whole rich world of late 1800s, like fantasy literature that was yep. like, um, and you have like Olaf Stapleton in the early 20th century with with sci-fi with like the Star Maker and stuff. Yeah, the so Star Maker is a huge, huge influence on Lord of Light, very visibly. Um, I think, I mean, Stapleton, when you ask these people about Stapleton, a lot of them, I think it was Aldis who said it like explicitly that Stapleton is the best sci-fi writer to have ever existed. And basically we're all just trying to recreate the magic in a bottle of First and Last Men and Star Maker. Yeah, because it's like there's there's a general vibe to science fiction within even the bubble of like the 40s up to maybe the 70s of wanting until you get to like the Ballardian very like mature approach yeah. to sci-fi and like Kobo Abe and things like that, where the vibe seems to be you have this the way that a child like reads um reads the Bible or reads the Quran or reads uh, like any of their religious texts and which have not, not to be, not to be mean or anything. There are fantastical elements in religious texts. Yeah. Um, and there are varying approaches to that. Sometimes you're like, well, that's, this is a revelation of, and other times you're like, that's just a poetic way to, doesn't matter. It's still, but there, there's a, there's a magic to the way that a child reads that where there is an ability to like just witness the mystery without mm -hmm. without needing a mechanic behind it and th that's obviously a sense of reading these fantastical things that diminishes over time for the very boring normal reasons of lived life sort of grounds us in the notion that there is a mechanic and mechanics can be squared and you can find a contradiction and then one thing wins out one thing that I love about Zelazny is that it always feels 
like like I am a child witnessing something. Yep. And, Which and is, I think it, it, it's like that subtle point. So it, it's a place where Ursula Le Guin and him meet from two yes. differing ends. Because with Ursula, there's always an explanation and things always make sense, but they are still fantastical because the worlds in which he describes are inherently fantastical. But nothing happens for no reason. Like, for example, the magic in Earthsea is very, very rigid based around language, but it has a clear structure. And then the world feels rich and ontologically stable. And then Zelazny meets her at the same place from the completely opposite approach of, I'm not going to explain too much about this. Like, for example, in Lord of Light, to bring it back to the, the specific mm-hmm. piece, you have... And, and he touches upon this idea also in Isle of the Dead and in other things that he wrote, um, the aspect system, right? Um, well, gods or beings that are might as well be gods because of their technological power, they have these aspects, which can be broadly understood like Jungian archetypes. And from these aspects, they derive attributes, right? So for example, if I have the aspect of the god of fire, one of my attributes will be that I'm able to, you know, fly on a shoot of flame, right? Or I am the best archer in the land because I am the god of fire. And that starts to explore how abstract and subconsciously wild all of these tools are. You cannot, like, lay it out and say, oh, because he is the god of fire, he has one, two, three, four, five attributes, and then he goes and... Um, just does things with them, which is what would happen in an Ursula Le Guin story of the same variety, right? Here, it's a lot about what is hinted, what is un- unsaid, what is um, assumed, right? What do we assume when we hear fire? And those things can change, by the way. As, as the culture in the book changes, the powers of the gods also wax and wane and change in many ways because they are influenced by the interpretation of these aspects. Um, and and into this, into this kind of very complex and, and subtle discourse, and this is what for me separates Zelazny from a lot of the other new wave um, science fiction writers. Is someone you've already mentioned um, on this episode, and that's Nietzsche. There is mu- something yeah. very Nietzschean in Roger Zelazny's writing. In Amber, it's simple. You have a hero, and it's all about the hero's journey to self-actualization and to claiming from the world the power that he believes he has. And I'm, I'm, I'm talking about Corwin, right? The, the main Amber character. Yeah. But then also in Isle of the Dead um, and in Lord of Light, there is this Nietzschean or bo- more broadly existentialist idea of figuring out who you are by building it, by making it. There is no essence. Those aspects and attributes, they don't sit on this substrata of existence. They are actively being made by the agents using them as they're using them and if that sounds complicated and <laughs> weird and hard to understand it is like i've read lord of light four times and some of the passages they'll make absolutely no sense <laughs> um they don't they're just like yeah what? no I, I i agree completely it, it touches on that it, that's sort of the aspect that i meant before of like um that sense of when you're young and you're reading like yeah, I, I grew up very religious. Like I, I eventually became totally non-religious, but I was very, very devoutly religious for a long time. And even when I left Christianity because of the the tried and true thing, 
Um, I had a question. My pastor was like, don't fucking ask that question. Read your Bible. So yeah. I took him at his word and I read the whole Bible front to back, which takes a long time because that book's fucking long. And that's when <laughs> I found out that God's evil because um, I was like, wow, this is this contains a lot more evil shit than I expected. So, you know, cast about for, um, you know, well, I still believe in God, but I don't really believe I, I'm not comfortable worshiping this one. Maybe Hinduism will speak to me, maybe Buddhism, like, you know, very open heartedly just sort of looking at stuff. And eventually I was like, no, none of these do. But wound up touching a lot of stuff. There's a sense when you're reading those things where it has two components that I see very strongly mirrored in Lord of Light, very deliberately so, obviously, as well. Um, and we'll explain its plot in just a second, which thankfully <laughs> is mysteriously simple. Um, yeah. the, the element that I see in common is two things are presented simultaneously. Um, I'm going to tell you something that you do not understand that you must understand. The second thing, it is also absolutely true. And when you're a child and you're re reading a religious text, you don't question any of that. Natural contradictions will emerge from that. Like how can something be necessary to know, impossible to know, and absolutely true at some point? Like if it was absolutely true, and necessary to know, wouldn't you have made, if you have control over this information, wouldn't you have made it easier to understand? If I can't understand it, is it necessary to know? Because I literally will never grasp it. Like, you know, you, you form the sort of network with an adult mind, but with sort of the younger mind more attenuated to witnessing mystery and knowing like, well, the world's bigger and more fantastical and strange than I know because I'm five. I haven't seen enough. You just go, oh, that must be true. And yeah. there is a primal, like you were saying, there's a primal Nietzschean power. And Nietzsche explicitly draws power from crafting a contradiction and not, not letting it go and letting the eruptive impossible combination of these two contradictory things be that sort of slingshot effect yeah um i think like the, the primal before we maybe get to the plot <laughs> the the primal to understanding the plot and what Zelazny is trying to tell us is a quote by the man himself from um isle of the dead you'll hear me maybe referencing that book a lot it's a fantastic book um one of his less read and it has a lot of overlap with um, Lord of Light, and he said, well, one of the characters in there says, symbols by their very nature conceal as well as indicate, damn them. Um, and I think <laughs> that's, that's what you need to understand Zelazny. Like when yeah. he said fire, he's telling you, okay, X and Y and Z, but he's also not telling you something else. He's also concealing a different part of the story. And many of his stories feel like there's actually two stories going on. The stories you're being told and the story that is happening underneath the surface. Um, his best book to experience that is Lord Demon, where it literally feels like you're reading two books. And it's fascinating. <laughs> um, so the plot of, of Lord of Light. The plot of Lord of Light is, as I mentioned before, it's, it's a mysteriously simple thing. There's, at least initially, two layers and they're both very easy to follow uh the first layer is a metaphorical slash science fictional slash allegorical retelling of the rise of buddhist 
the rise of Buddhism within the context of Hinduism, because mm -hmm. a little historical factoid and a very brief one that you can elaborate with, you know, further reading if you want. Um, the initial the initial push that created Buddhism was not intended to be a unique faith. It was intended almost as like a reformist movement within Hinduism because Siddhartha Gautama mm -hmm. was a Hindu. That was when you read the story of his life. Um, the priests that he was visiting were Hindu priests. The priesthood that he was uh, brought into was was that of Hinduism. And obviously, that's Hinduism is a very big umbrella with a lot of little umbrellas in it. So there's a lot of complexity there that I'm not the best equipped to comment on. I've read a lot about it, and even still, I I don't. But what's important to know is that his initial thoughts. And we know this through the Dhammapada, which is basically the Gospel of the Buddha, and we know that. We know it as well through early Buddhist uh, Buddhist writings. They didn't see themselves as a different religion. They saw themselves as we're Hindus who have a specific approach to the broader faith because they were united by the notion of the Atman and the Brahman and the the because one of the big things about Hinduism is it presents itself as polytheistic, but at root, all of these are considered aspects of the one single divine emanation. So there is ultimately only one God and worshiping any God is worshiping the one God, all that kind of stuff. And Buddhism fits very well with that. But inevitably, there were fractures that couldn't be resolved because of, again, going back to Deleuze and the notion of smoothness versus rigidity in like a non-physical space. There were built up rigidities in both Hinduism, but also growing rigidities within Buddhism that contradicted each other. They couldn't mm -hmm. coexist. One of them would have to give way, or both of them would have to give way. And neither did, which created this split, where they became two separate faiths. Like, in like they're, they're linked, absolutely. You can't really have one without the other, and understanding one deepens your understanding of the other. But they... At some point, you have to pick. They don't coexist. It's it's very similar to the relation of, like, mind-bogglingly similar to the relation of Christianity and uh, Judaism. Yeah. Where, like, to the point where, like, literal, like, numerous, like, PhD theses and stuff have been written about. <laughs> the, it's, it's overwhelmingly strong. So that's one layer. Um, and in that layer, the main character is basically the Buddha, and it's the story of how he brings about Buddhism and how he attempts to just have it be a reformist thing, and then that doesn't work, so it becomes its own thing. And then on the other layer, um, you have a pretty standard Golden Age uh, sci-fi story of uh, generation ships have left the Earth because the Earth has been destroyed or something it's science fictionally unimportant now <laughs> um, and so a colony ship goes to a new planet that they're like let's colonize here and as a result you have two casts of people one cast that are kept basically in cryo sleep um until you get there and another cast that run the ship but in order to run the ship because you're going to be going there for so long and it's going to take so many light years and you know thousands or tens of thousands or maybe millions or billions of years who knows an unimaginably long amount of time they would they would eventually die and then no one would be running the ship so they made technology to basically make sure that the people running the ship will never die so that way you can get there um and when you get there you can wake everyone up pretty simple and so they get there and they land but 
the amount of time of being literal immortals has made these people not view them. They basically inverted the thought of who's the servant and who's the master. The, the thought of we're all functionally in a commune arriving at this new planet so we can live together has been replaced by I'm immortal and you're not. I'm your god. I'm better than you. I mean, they don't. And also, in that, you, you live and die at my whim. <laughs> yes. In that framework, they they don't think of themselves as gods, but they're very willing to present themselves that way because that maintains their power structure. And they've now used this technology that lets them live forever to basically, by like regenerating a body if it's died and all kinds of stuff, all kinds of sci-fi stuff that the details of which aren't necessarily super important, even though they're very fascinating. They use them to basically go, we're going to keep this, we're going to keep this in a cave and we're going to tell you it's a cave haunted by demons and basically spin a tale of religion for you to keep you away. But it's ultimately just the spaceship and it's just technology that we have. And if anyone had this technology, they could do what we do. And so the only way to maintain our power is to make sure that you never get it. Um, and that's sort of the other side. They also find that the planet they land on has native flora and fauna that they have to deal with. Sometimes they work with it. Sometimes they work against it. Um, there is the standard kind of tale you can imagine of the uprising of people against their godlike masters. There's also the people who stop the uprising, who are not gods themselves, but are like, no, those are our gods. You can't. There's fighting amongst the gods. Pretty, pretty standard stuff. In a, in a normal world, in any other writer's hands, Either one of those elements would be pretty simple, pretty ham-fisted, maybe pulpy. I mean, Stargate SG-1 is, is that <laughs> same story, basically. And no, no one's going to pretend that that's, that's like a literary accomplishment. Yeah. It's fun, and I like, I like Stargate SG-1, but it's not, it's not cerebral. But it's, uh, it's Roger Zelazny writing this. Yeah. Um, and that's where... The, the stuff that we mentioned before starts coming to bear that like the poetic interplay, like he doesn't, he really doesn't seem to care about either of those two surface level plots. Those are almost like if, if, if you've ever like woven something before, those are like the two bars on the side. And the thing he cares about is the thing he's weaving between in the space between those two, not, yeah which is the story of Sam, right? Who is as close as this book has to a protagonist. Um, and the, the name comes from a shortening of like a more religious term. Mahasmatman. Uh, yeah. And I think it's, it's crucial to understand that the, the parts dropped and it's literally in the book that he prefers to drop them. Um, <laughs> he preferred to drop the Maha and the Atman, however, and called himself Sam. So Maha is large or gigantic in um, Indo-European and, and Proto-Indo-European. And Atman is a very, very important concept in Hindu philosophy um, that correlates, sort of correlates to soul um, or spirit or the self. So Zelazny is using these terms here as sort of a, a, sort of a pun. And Sam, I'm not going to spoil the entire plot, but just the necessary things, he he was one of the crew members on the ship and thus is immortal. And he was a willing participant to begin with. And in fact, his specific powers that have to do with like gravitational electromagnetic fields 
helped the gods um, quell a lot of the native life forms on the planet. And he became disillusioned with this caste system and mostly with the gods holding the immortality technology um, in his mind. And he is literally described as an accelerationist in the book, by the way, which is very fascinating. He believes that all technology should be available to everyone, and including immortality um, technology. And, and in his idea of immortality for all, he mirrors the Buddha. Um, and also in his fight against the gods and against the established order, as you said, much like the actual historic Buddha, um, Sam is... He is the, the Nietzschean protagonist striving to express themselves authentically, right? to fashion a self and then have the freedom and the power to create that freedom to be who they are without being um, bothered. And I think what's really interesting is how Zelazny ties that struggle into necropolitics, right? the politics of death. <laughs> and of dying and of the corpse, which is something that I've been thinking about a lot lately. I think the first thing that really triggered it was Clipping's latest album, um, which is about necropolitics and about horror and the undead as a vessel to talk about African-American liberation and anti-capitalism and anti-fascism and stuff like that. And something very similar happens here, albeit with like a brighter tint. Basically, what, what Sam is, is saying, his, his whole agenda or ideology is once we conquered death, we also conquered life. Like all of the problems that arise as a living person can be solved if you're immortal. You're not in shape. You literally have thousands of years to get in shape. Oh, and guess what? You can jump bodies. So you want to be prettier and more attractive? You can do that. You don't have enough money? Just wait. Just wait 10,000 years and suddenly you're rich. Do you have a political opponent? He's going to die. You're not. So just literally just go to a castle and wait 100 years, which is like a blink of an eye to you, and the problem will solve itself. And that gives you untold power because it's not an army or a special power. It's not really that you can fire the bow of of lightning or whatever. It's just your ability to step outside of the game and just wait everything out, um, which is literally true for rich people, right? That's literally what happens in reality. So they don't live forever, but they live much healthier and longer and more plastic lives than ours in the sense that they can mold them. Right? By controlling innovation and technology and access to it, they can wait out all of their problems. They have a long view that we don't have. So, like, why do you think Elon Musk, you know, thinks in thinks about Mars or thinks about space? Because he literally knows he has enough money to outlast the 30, 40, 50 years that are necessary for those things to come to fruition. Because his chance to live to 85 and 90 and 95 are much, 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 much more significant than the rest of us. So Zelazny does a really interesting job of painting a fantastical, outlandish story, but actually making it about day-to-day -day problems that we experience, which I would say is, the, is the, the sign of the hallmark of any great science fiction 
work. Yeah, and this this so, <laughs> through through no fault of your own, this also doesn't even touch on this whole other aspect of the work. Yeah. And again, this is this is it's worth noting before I say any of that. The book is all of my my copy is just under three hundred pages, just under. So it's yeah. not a long book. Incredibly, but it 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 feels less. less so I mean, obviously the the obvious, almost cloyingly obvious uh, metaphor would be like an unfolding lotus. Um, that, <laughs> that that perhaps is maybe a little bit too on the nose for this, but it's. I tend to view this almost like a big rotating, like hyper object, like a like a thirty, like a thirty thousand face, uh, gem, and it just it just keeps turning. And every time I'm like, I'm finally grasping that I'll read a line and I'll feel like I'll feel like I don't even know what's happening anymore. Not in the bad way, but in the it it feels constantly revelatory, like it's constantly refreshed in its revelatory power. Yeah. Partly because as much as everything you said is very literally true about the book, there's also this other like thrumming, like real spiritual and theological core to the work. Which is which is uh, tied to the personal story being told, right? Like yeah. strip of the politics and, and the macro literature that's happening. There's also just quote unquote the story of people coming to terms with their mortality and their gods and their belief. There's even like in the world outside of outside of humanity, there is there's also within it a tale of gods and souls and this weird like uh intertwined dance. He he takes the literal he he takes the the Hindu thrust of it very literally. The ship that lands there, its original name is the Star of India. And it's strongly implied to be uh a, a product of like an Indian space agency. Yeah. And so it's, it's literally people of the Indian subcontinent are, are filling this ship and it's, it's just them. So that alone is fascinating in its own way. It's like, it's very explicitly, actually, let me rephrase that. It's very implicitly um, an ultra non-white book. There are, there are literally no white people in the entire book. He doesn't comment on that because they've spent so long in the company of only themselves, but that, that there would be no need to bring that up. They don't really think in terms of the racial hierarchies of Earth anymore because they haven't those haven't been applicable. It's like we don't bring up that someone is a non-Neanderthal um, because Neanderthals, to the best of our knowledge, do not exist anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but through that, he's able to really hone in and have at least this valence that is uh, something that was quite in vogue at the time. It's something about Ursula K. Le Guin's work as well, that I, especially the later books of Earthsea that I find get sort of frustratingly overlooked when people talk about them. There's yeah. this very human end, but there's also this, from people who were agnostics leaning more often towards atheism, um, both in Zelazny and Ursula K. Le Guin's sense, there's still this, like, this aspect of them that, that has neither of them fully shed their affinity for spiritualism because both of when and how they grew up, even as their politics matured, even as their understanding of the world matured, there's sort of like that, that native impulse 
Yeah, I, I, I think the term that is very useful here is humanism. Yeah. They were both very much humanists where the human and its needs and its actualization and its coming to being is the religious moment, right? Um, it is re-centralized instead of, of God. Um, the human is, is placed um, at its place. And like Ursula wrote explicitly about you know, the difference between organized, atrophied religion, which worships God as an abstract form, as opposed to a living, organic, and vital religion, which worships humanity as the manifestation of that God. And that's that's where like his, Zelazny's uh, deployment and usage of both Hinduism and Buddhism sort of comes to bear on Lord of Light. And it's something that's, that's mirrored across like a huge amount of his work. Like um, there is a spiritual sequel mm-hmm. to this called Creatures of Light and Darkness that has a similar bent, but with Egyptian um, Egyptian gods and technology oh, and some. some I, I just want to. I just want to point out a subplot from that book, which is literally my favorite thing to point out when people talk about science fiction. There is a, there is a kind of computer in Creatures of Light and Darkness that is literally Wikipedia. It just has all <laughs> the knowledge, but the way in which you engage it is by having sex with it, and <laughs> you have to please it uh, sexually before it provides you with the search results and there's literally a scene where the character is there to ask it a question and it says i'm not done yet you have to finish me off before i'll tell you what you're looking for and it's just (laughs) the the high and the low as they mix in zelazny right like a story (laughs) about gods and immortality and science and and technology and all that stuff but also there's a computer you need to fuck it's just it's brilliant that uh, he he plays these these kinds of these kinds of images of of the relation of pantheons of gods and human need or a human need to explain things and obviously the lay version of approaching that is you know oh, we used religion before we had science in order to and that's a very banal and dull way to think about religion and spirituality in general because it's also a framework that we used to discuss the phenomenological element of being alive and being human and feeling desire. Yes, you can mechanically map out these chemical packages, uh, like neuroactive chemical packages are deployed in your brain and they, they, you know, hit these certain, um, not sensors. The brain doesn't have fucking sensors. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm using pure sci-fi words now but you you know you can describe mechanically the neurochemistry of desire or something but that will naturally miss the feeling of desire uh and that's that's something that to him those are questions that to him never lost value they they have an integrated value they don't to unlike other authors they don't take soul supremacy over actually having a deeper understanding of the world or social structures or things like that. But they're still a part of it. They're an inextractable part of it. We can't become non-human. We can't understand the world through a non-human lens. We only mm-hmm. have this one. And so at a certain point, we it doesn't benefit us to not engage with it. Um, you can make high-minded connections there if you want to like 
an efficacious leftism has to acknowledge the humanity of the people you're engaging with. It can't just be theoretical. You have to be like, I, I witness you as a living human who feels desire, who feels suffering, who feels hope, who feels pain. You can do that, but you don't, you don't even need to, because like, if you're listening to this, you're a living human person. You also have these things. <laughs> yeah. And it's this, fascinating thing to me how it will wheel between this sort of opaque mystifying spiritual language and then it will drop into pure social commentary and then it will drop into a pure like like a tale just like a fabular like and then this dude He's shooting lightning and this guy's killing shit with a wand and he has a, a, <laughs> a, a, a cart made of iron. And then Sam has seduced both this woman god and also a tiger man who's maybe made of fire, but maybe he's yeah. gas, but maybe he has four arms. Uh, and they're like, they're fighting in the sky. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, it never, it never stops being fun, even though it's, it's dealing with all of these subjects. And I think that also speaks to Roger Zelazny, the person. So yes, he was this very accomplished writer, and he was a very prolific um, writer and participator in his community, but he was also the master of the sword. Um, he, was, uh, he, was, he mastered the epée in college, and, and he, became, he continued to train with it. He also had a black belt in Aikido, and he taught Aikido and Tai Chi and Judo. And he was this very larger-than-life person. He liked, even though he was athletic and he ended up quitting, he liked to smoke. Um, like, you know, it was, the, it was the 70s, so he smoked, like, a, a cigars and, and pipes. People still do that, but it seems, like, old-fashioned to me. Um, he was this, like, very... He spoke a lot of languages. He spoke Latin. He spoke French and German and Italian. And he would... He would quote it. Uh, he would quote those languages all the time. He was like this very, almost like a character in one of his novels, right? He was a man, a man of the world, like a Renaissance figure. Um, and he was also very um, magnanimous. Um, there's a very famous story about George R. R. Martin, where George R. R. Martin was writing his pulpy superhero books. By the way, if you haven't read those, they're a lot of fun. Um, and Roger Zelazny wrote a few stories there. And he had no money. And Roger Zelazny just opened his house to him and fed him and let him sleep at his house, basically live there for a long time. Um, so he was this very unique character within, within the world as well, which interacts with the book in really interesting ways because it's all, it's, some of it is about, yeah, I'm this giant god and I can shoot lightning for my staff, but I just want to sit down and have some tea with you. Can we just talk for a second about your fears and your desires and your very human um, experiences. And the last place where this book and, and reality, quote unquote, coincide is, I don't know if you knew this, but the, the script for this book was the script that American agents used in the Canadian caper to exfiltrate the diplomatic staff in the Iranian hostage crisis. What? Um, yeah. So Argo, all that thing, right? So they, they, yeah, the, they, the fictional they movie that they, <laughs> it was Lord of Light. So Lord of Light was commissioned in 1979 to become a film, 
a $50 million film in $79. Um, they got fucking Jack Kirby to do the set design. So if this is like ringing any Khodorovsky's Dune bells for you, it should be. We'll <laughs> get into that in like a future episode, maybe. Um, but anyway, Kirby fucking did a lot of the set. And then because of legal problems, and no one knows exactly what happened there, the project was scrapped until the fucking CIA bought it to use it as an excuse to put Canadian people in Iran to rescue the diplomats. Um, and they renamed it Argo. And it was basically Lord of Light with Middle Eastern flavor instead of Hindu. Um, yeah. I'd always thought that they had like based it on Lord of Light, but not that it was literally like an actual abandoned film version of Lord of it, Light. That they just snatched up. That's that's nuts. Yeah, it was the script, which was totally done. And Jack Kirby's set designs um, that they bought as a cover for the Canadian caper. Um, so what is the point like why is that interesting it's interesting because you're reading this book and it feels so lively and vital and essential and um relevant to your life but also so fantastical and out of this world it's like there's a literal jet-powered aircraft called thunder chariot that shiva rides on um and then you find out that it was used by the cia to rescue um, american diplomats and what i said when i found out was of course, of course it was. I mean, if you told me that hadn't happened with this book, I would be surprised because it's just that larger than life, that unbelievably intense and, and, and alive that it makes total sense that it would be part of such a wild and, and infamous um, event. So there's nothing quite like Zelazny. Um, and within his pantheon, I would say, there's nothing quite like Lord of Light still. Um, it just leaps out of the page and into real life and into the world through history and your own experience of it and, and the way it influences you is just a really unique book. Yeah, it's 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 funny because like my own history with Zelazny was this very weird sort of strangulated one. Um, so we're about the same age. So I also remember when the big Chronicles of Amber um, omnibus yeah. came out and I, um, a bunch of friends of mine all got copies because they we all had like dads and uncles and, and aunts and stuff and moms who who loved sci-fi and fantasy and were like get that get that fucking shit get it now um but and like i didn't get a copy myself but like a friend of mine did and this girl that i like did and it was in middle school and i was like oh this mm -hmm. girl that i like likes this book and, I'm gonna... <laughs> and then best reason then, to read a book then you have the uh you have, i will before she finished it we had that middle school fallout where it's like no I don't like you anymore. I think you're terrible. So I did not read the book. I was like, I can't read it. No, I hate this. No, it's terrible. Um, I then go to, uh, I then go to high school and I become friends with someone who's named blaze. Wow. Blaze is in spelled exactly the same way because his parents named him after the character from Amber. Um, wow. That's insane. Um, and like made him learn. Well, not made, but like slightly pressured and he accepted to learn Aikido and he also took fencing. And so it was very wow. much like, yeah. Um, uh, he's also the one who turned me on to Rush, who I hated prior to then, which it is weird for me to look back on, but it's true. Yeah. Um, but even still, I was like, oh, that's fascinating. I'm still not gonna, still not gonna read these. I'm, I'm beyond this now. I'm in, I was in a whole other kind of 
headspace when it came to books at that point. Like I just, the year that I met Blaze is the same year that I discovered Borge just on a fluke because I was, I was bored in class and I flipped through the, like the, the big book of stories that we were reading for, you know, our English class. And they had the book of sand just in there. And I read it and I was like, Holy fuck. Like, um, so I was, I was on this whole other tip at that point. And then I get older and, you know, I'm, I get into, get into Neil Gaiman. I read Sandman and a whole bunch of other stuff. And, we don't need to comment on how Gaiman's life has developed since then. But when you're a, <laughs> a, when you're a young man who's getting into, you know, literature and what it can do, Sandman is a, a more than perfectly fine thing to read. It has its problems. You know, there's some elements that if it was written in 2020, I'm certain would yeah. be different, or I hope would be different. But it was written in 1990, like 1988 to like 1995 or so. So, you know, it's a, it's a little bit more understandable. Not great, but understandable. Um, and he starts bringing up like one, one thing that's very beneficial about Gaiman that gets overlooked a lot, because to be fair, there are other uh, more obviously louder elements of his life yeah. that people comment on. Can't fault them for that, but he's very vocal about where his influences come from. Mm-hmm. Like he wears them and on his sleeve. Very wild, widely read. Yes. Um, and it's one of those things where I, I was always the type where I'd get a record and I'd immediately, if I, if I liked it enough, I'd look through the liner notes to see who were they thanking. Um, same with acknowledgements in a book, same with, you know, interviews with film directors and, and bands, because, you know, that, that can be a really great way to learn about both the thing you already love, but then, you know, maybe you love that shit too. And like, I remember Mashuga thanked Tori Amos in a, uh, in the liner <laughs> notes for Chaosphere. Yeah. And you would never expect that. And then, but you know, I love Tori Amos now. So it's like, oh, this is very fantastic. And Gaiman's very open about where all of his ideas are coming from. And he was mentioning a lot of authors that I'd either heard the name, but never read anything from before. Like he, he's the first time I ran into the name Robert Sheckley, um, which I, I, I must have run into before, but it just didn't click. Didn't, didn't like permanently embed itself in my brain. Yeah. Um, who, by the way, wrote books with Zelezny. Yeah. Um, that's one of the reasons why I brought him up uh, specifically. Um, yeah. But uh, he mentioned being not only rabid about Zelazny in specific, but Lord of Light even more specifically. He's like, love all of his works. Literally all of them are great. A master of science fiction and fantasy. But that one is like, if I could pick one book, uh, yeah, uh, he he said some like super superlative thing, where it's like if I could pick like five or ten books of the entire science fiction canon to survive the next ten thousand years, that would easily be one of them. Like well above uh, things that you would consider like a shoe in, I would easily yeah. put it. And I'm like, okay, that's a big deal. And I go to the store and I find it in the bookstore, and the biggest blurb on the back on my copy is one from Neil Gaiman, where he says a very similar thing, where it's just like. It's a really long blurb. Like normally blurbs are, you know, like eight to 14 words. It's basically like this book was good. And then this <laughs> one's a whole last paragraph. <laughs> like, um, so I was like, okay, I'll, I'll make the jump. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think it's probably stuff like that that keeps me from being as malicious or like, spiteful towards Neil Gaiman as some people have, which not yeah. necessarily faulting them. I hear some of the reasons for it and I 
not judging those. But like a lot of my associations is by liking his stuff, that became the thing that put me in contact with stuff that I wound up liking more. But like, I honestly don't know if I would have ever read Lord of Light if not for that. And it's hard for me to forget the kind of like, you put me in contact with a book that I, like this goes up there with, um, uh, what is it? The, the Gene Wolfe series, Book of the New Sun, in terms of being just like some of the best science fiction I'd ever read. Um, just stopping you to drop a bombshell. Book of the New Sun is the best science fiction series ever written in my eyes. Yes, yes. Um, no, yeah, 100% agree. That's, yeah. um, it's honestly one of the best books I've ever read, just period. Um, yeah, it's... Yeah, we should absolutely cover that at some point, because that's just like... Yeah. <laughs> Well, Although, that would be like, that would be, we need like 10 episodes just to talk about Book of right? the New Sun. Yeah. I was like, I was going to say the same comment where I was like, I, I don't know how productive we'd be. We have people have been talking about it for decades. Did you know that there was a recent breakthrough like three years ago in, yeah, in yeah. something about the, Into it's, the plot, yeah. <laughs> it's, mm, but, but we're not talking about that. We're talking about Lord of Light. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's, this lives in that same caliber of like, and I'm certain so I'm certain anyone listening to this will understand this point, but I'm certain you, Eden, more specifically, will understand it even more because we both work in in the media world. You know, we write about records a lot, and mm -hmm. the reality of that is for any one record that we write about, we've heard 10 to 50 more. And it's not even that we don't like those 10 to 50. Maybe we even like one of them more than the one we wrote about, but there are other considerations. It's like... Who would benefit from our time the most? Who do we have more productive things to say about? Maybe I have more of a coherent thought about this record than this one, even if me. There's a lot of stuff. But ultimately, it means that you are exposed to so much all the time. And as a result, it can be hard to stay refreshed and to stay like, like I'm, it's it's hard to imagine a record that I run into in the next five to ten years having the same impact that, say, Master of Puppets had on me the first time I heard it. And that's mm -hmm. not because there will never be a record as good as Master of Puppets again. It's more that it... I'm, I'm not, like, 100% sure of this, but it feels sometimes like we have a finite amount of times we can feel something that extremely. And they get they get spent through being alive. And then, you know... Um, so as a result, you start really cherishing them when they happen, you know, especially as you get later on in life, when you run into something, you're like, this lives up there with all those other great, like big moments and big experiences for me. And reading Lord of Light made me feel like I was a six year old reading Lord of the Rings again, or an eight or nine year old reading Dune for the first time, where it was just like. But I was an adult when I read it the first time. I think I was like 19 or 20. Um, yeah. So not, not very old, but. Um, yeah, and it's just like, it's. I mean, that, that's one of the reasons why it, it's a book that's come up on our podcast before in episodes not about it, just because it. Yeah, it, it does this thing to your brain where you're like, you're like, fuck, that book is so fucking good. 
Yeah. Someone someone's like this sci-fi book has vaguely uh Buddhist themes. It's like, you know what other sci-fi book has Buddhist themes? <laughs> <laughs> and it's probably much better than what you're reading not because <laughs> what you're reading is bad just because Lord of Light is so fucking good it it winds up making this and I think part of that comes back to the thing that we were mentioning before is that it's sort of an inherent element in how Zelazny writes this is present across pretty much all of his work but here it feels the most intensified where it's this it's this poetic gem-like structure that's just the right amount of opaque and just the right amount of transparent. So it you don't feel like you're being shunted off, but also mm-hmm. you feel like it deserves and asks for more time and more effort to really crack into it. And it feels like it keeps giving back. For every little bit of effort you put in, you crack it open a little bit more and you get a little bit more out of it. But it inexplicably feels like it doesn't get any, it doesn't feel like it decreases in size at any point while you do this. It feels like it, it remains the exact same amount that you don't know. And so in theory, you can keep putting more effort into it and keep getting more out of it. Yeah, I think the last thing I want to say, you know, I think our discussion is revolved around how, how singular Roger Zelazny really is, not just his book, but his entire career. And I think one of the best ways to drive that message home is by mentioning the fact that out of any other science fiction author, I think in the history of the genre being formally recognized by organizations, his books have most often competed against each other for Nebula and Hugo Awards. Um, there are literally like Lord of Light competed with Damnation Alley for the the best novel and uh, the best novel in the what is it the Hugo Awards the Hugo Awards and Lord of Light won. Um, other comes now the power and for a breath I tarry. That's a short story and a novelette competed with each other for Hugos and the list the list goes on and on. Like he kept just making so much good work. Um, and capturing the minds of not just readers, but also his fellow writers and people in the genre. I, I think the only person that, again, which her name has come up several times that is comparable to him is also Le Guin in that regard, right? Yeah. Well, she won like a million nebulas and Yugos because she was so, she was so well-loved. And I think the, the reason for it is, is that humanity, right? Is that essence in his books that I totally agree that it's a gem and it has so many facets but you can with the help of the mystery you can leap into its core without understanding the parts and the core is is the challenge and the beauty and the horribleness and the miracle of of just being alive and being a person and being this weird um as the Greeks called it being a daemon right half half a man half spirit Right? having half your body in the physical realm and half of it in the intellectual and abstract realm. And I think no author, and even also Le Guin, who is my favorite science fiction author and favorite author, um, period, no one has done as good a job as Leslie in capturing that, that tension um, and that complex um, reality of, of being both those things. 
Um, read Lord of Light. Come on, just do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. That's all I got to say. Just read this book. Yeah, that's that's a that's a good ass ending on this one because it's yeah. That <laughs> what else are you going to say about it? Um, yeah. uh, all right, so we're gonna lead out with some music. Um, since we played uh, Primitive Man for for the uh, mid episode break, we're gonna play um, something from a group called Nug for mm-hmm. the. Uh, I think it's pronounced Nug. Maybe it's Nug. Nug. Yeah, Nug. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> I just I'm looking at them like they can't have they can't have named their their band the weed word. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Nug is a really fascinating band in a certain way because they they're one of those. It's obviously when when you hear a buzz about band in in the metal world, even from other writers, it's not terribly common that they are literally like brand new. Um, sometimes it'll be like, oh, it's this guy's side project. And it's like, okay, well, that's that's where it caught someone's ear. Or maybe it's like, oh, this is like their third record, and these people have had their ear to the ground, and they've been monitoring them, but this is the one that you should pay attention to. Um, not uncommon at all. Largely, again, just because there's so many bands, there's so yeah. many artists, and there's so many records that it, e- even if you're uh, like professionally writing about it, it's hard to know where to start. Any given month, it's hard. Like you get, I you you have a thread on Facebook of like why I deleted your promo, um, and <laughs> that kind of thing only arises because you get so many that at some yeah. point you're like, I have to have some kind of sorting algorithm. Filter, it's not, yeah. it, it's not even to fault the things that you're deleting. Always, sometimes it is, but not always, <laughs> because it's like even if I absolutely wanted to, I don't have the time to actually process every single one of these and then pick from them and then think up thoughts and then write those thoughts and then edit those, you know. Um, Which also taps into why uh, Heavy Blog is heavy is getting its its uh, 3.0 version very soon. Yeah. Um, just to, to grapple with that. Like, yeah, to cope. Yeah, because it it happens to anyone sort of, especially in the industry, that like you can do it, you can solidly truck along, maybe for even months or even years, but at some point it hits you, you're like, I'm looking at albums on people's year-end list that I haven't, I not only haven't heard, I haven't heard of them because I've been so deep in the silo doing, you know, getting my shit done that I've apparently missed like, 34 records that are apparently end of year worthy like what like what the <laughs> fuck um, and so it was really fascinating to see that nug has none of those connections from what i can see like their their debut this is from their debut record um that just came out on on friday um and their debuts through willow tip who are um they're not like the biggest label in the world they're not like warner brothers and they aren't even one of the very big metal labels like relapse or, or a metal blade or something, but they're big. They're very well respected. They're a respected yeah. label. Um, but even still, it's like they had one EP that came out. That seems like it was a band camp exclusive. Um, all the songs were initially in Ukrainian and uh, it, they're a, they're a post metal band, which, I, I still love post metal. Apparently, that's weird to a lot of people. It's so it's a genre that's sort of fallen out of favor. Um, but what that does mean is that post metal tends not to get a lot of buzz anymore. Even if 
even if you're a good post-metal band, you have to be like really fucking good for people to yeah. care. It's moments fast. Yeah. And it's that that can be kind of frustrating, but it happens to any genre that has like a fairly big bubble. And that, that kind of stuff did have a pretty big bubble in like the yeah. mid two thousands to like the early 2010s. And even now, almost a decade later, it still left a certain amount of people burned out. Um, so it's like, oh, another post-metal band. <sighs> so it's with that context that I bring up that Willow Tip, a technical death metal label, signing very, a post-metal band. Very and, known for that aesthetic, right? Yeah. Like, like you can refer to things as a Willow Tip band the same way yeah. that you can like a unique leader uh, band or, or something like that, where it's like it's, it's a vibe. Um, the fact that they signed a post-metal band, and this is pretty straightforward post-metal, it's not wildly outside of the box, and the fact that people are buzzing about it is indicative that they just they just do it really well. Like, it's that same classic thing that, that I've been bringing up across this, of, like, you hear it and you, you feel like you're a 16-year-old hearing a post-metal song for yeah. the first time. Um, yeah. and you're like, oh it's shit, really I forgot metal could do this. <laughs> like, yeah, it really captures the mode that not lost, but it's kind of diminished with post metals, um, falling out of favor. I, I also like, lo still love post metal and this album, I've heard it a few times and I still need to dig deeper, but it's very, very fascinating and very interesting. Yeah. It, it has all that same, like the, the cinematic elements that people really, uh, love and mm -hmm. post metal it feels very emotionally forthright and emotionally boisterous um it plays with those elements of like very dark negative emotion and that sort of eruptive almost spiritualist response it, it every everything that i like about post metal it does and it does it in a way that i'm like people are resonating with this this is this is this is magical <laughs> um i'm so happy um because I'm one of the weirdos who thinks that like ISIS never put out a bad record. Like yeah. a, a lot of people are like, oh, o Oceanic's the only one that you need to know. Um, or other people are like, oh, up to Panopticon's great, but after that thing. I'm like, no, all of it's great. You're you're stupid. Like they're 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 a wildly <laughs> great band. Um, and this makes me feel a similar kind of way. And I'm like, oh, it's and the other like the the last little thought that I have is something that is really refreshing about it is given that they are so new and we know so little about the people who made this record there is no there is no narrative about it yeah it's we, we all just get, yeah it's like we all just get to experience a record and that's it's rare now and so i i'm it's really refreshing for me i'm like oh i love this so much <laughs> like <laughs> I think I'm going to play the album closer Nightshine. Um, a lot of these are, are really, really great songs. I, I gave it like a full listen through again last night. Um, but Nightshine, I think not only is a great song, but I think the ending of it would work really well for the, the ending of a podcast episode too. <laughs> so it has, it's very it self-serving. Yeah. It has a feeling of finality to it. Yeah. Yeah. And it, Especially something like that, I think will will go well after Lord of Light. Although, ra a song <laughs> called Radiance is very tempting. Um, uh, all right, so here is Nug with Nightshine. 